0: Hey folks, quick reminder, there are a few days left on the Achtung Cthulhu Tactics Kickstarter. We will link out in the show notes. Please check it out. It ends Sunday, March 4th.
1: Achtung Cthulhu Tactics is a turn-based strategy RPG where the player fights a desperate battle in the shadows of World War II against the Nazis and their inhuman allies.
0: If you need more information, <laughs> If you need more information, check out the full commercial Chris and I did for Octoon Cthulhu Tactics. It was earlier in the month, and you can grab it from both the free and subscription feeds or on the website. You may not have listened because it was a commercial, but I think the jingle I came up with at the end of it is well worth your two minutes of time.
1: It's the best thing that I've ever heard, ever.
0: (laughs) Please check it out. Without further ado, welcome to our coverage of The Strange
2: Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mr. Utterson, the lawyer, was a man of a rugged countenance that was never lighted by a smile. Cold, scanty, and embarrassed in discourse, backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary, and yet somehow lovable. At friendly meetings, and when the wine was to his taste, something eminently human beaconed from his eye, something indeed which never found its way into his talk, but which spoke not only in these silent symbols of the after-dinner face, but more often and loudly in the acts of his life. He had an approved tolerance for others, sometimes wondering, almost with envy, at the high pressure of spirits involved in their misdeeds, and in any extremity inclined to help, rather than to reprove. I incline to Cain's heresy, he used to say quaintly. I let my brother go to the devil in his own way, In this character, it was frequently his fortune to be the last reputable acquaintance and the last good influence in the lives of down-going men. And to such as these, so long as they came about his chambers, he never marked a shade of change in his demeanour. HPPodcraft.com
1: That was the opening paragraph of Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde.
0: Let me stop you right there. It is actually Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. What? Which is not a joke. I'm here to blow your mind right out of the gate on this book.
1: My mind is blown. Jekyll.
0: And I'll tell you why I'm pronouncing it Jekyll after we introduce ourselves. I am Chad (laughs) Pfiffer, and you are listening to the... (laughs) HP <laughs> Lovecraft Literary Podcast.
1: We're at HPPodcraft.com. I am Chris Lakey.
0: <laughs> and who was that debonair reader? Our reader is new to the show, Matt Young. Hello, Matt.
1: Matt is the lead vocalist and bass guitarist of Hex, that's spelled H E K Z. Ah. A band from the UK whose sound is best described as Iron Maiden, Queen, and Rush in a bar fight.
0: Oh, I like those bands. Why are they fighting? <laughs> I got to tune in and find out what they're fighting about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the band will be releasing their third studio album, Invicta on Friday, April 20th, but people who place their pre-order through the band's website before Friday the 23rd of March will receive their copy almost a month before the official release. So for more information on that band and to hear samples of their new album, visit HexTheBand.com. In
2: a world of duality...
1: This is not the first Robert Louis Stevenson that we've covered on the show. We did The Body Snatcher back in 2013. Yes. And remember, we had Chris Sarandon reading on that one.
0: I know. I was just bragging to somebody that I went to a rock show with Chris Sarandon once. (laughs) Yeah, I know. They were like, hey, I'm going to the Oscars this weekend. I was like, whatever. (laughs) But yes, we've tackled The Body Snatcher. Uh, I also talked extensively about Stevenson's Treasure Island. On um, a bus once when I was drunk So has happened in the past But we haven't tackled Jekyll and Hyde Now let me tell you why I'm saying the name that way I read the book again a few weeks ago and Mm -hmm. although I've read it several times, I'm really not conversant with any of the film adaptations and there are a lot of them. What's the classic one? What's the sort of Lugosi and Karloff of Jekyll and Hyde? Mm -hmm. I had heard of the Spencer Tracy 1941 MGM version, but when I did a little research and I asked around, people all said, no, you have to see the 1931 movie from Paramount. Frederick March plays Jekyll. He won an Oscar for the performance. That is the classic Jekyll and Hyde. You've got to see it. Okay. So I went and I checked it out. Now, 1931, that was the same year the Dracula and Frankenstein came out. Uh And, you know, those movies were remarkable for their sets, their makeup. But I'd say, and this is kind of more Dracula, but they're a little stagey. You know, they're very restrained. Jekyll and Hyde is not that. Oh, The camera work is really modern and innovative. There are these POV shots. There's really creative editing wipes where you're watching two scenes at once. There's some cool transformation trickery in there. The movie was also made before the motion picture production code, the Hayes Code which was the code that sort of infused moral standards into film Mm after 1930. So the sexuality and the brutality in the movie are really kind of shocking for what I'm used to seeing in that era. Mm. It's overtly sexual. More disturbing than any of that is the fact that everybody in the movie pronounces his name as Jekyll. Everybody. I thought they were doing it wrong. We were laughing about it. So after the movie was over, I looked it up and they were pronouncing it correctly. Robert Louis Stevenson was Scottish. The correct Scottish pronunciation of Jekyll is Jekyll.
2: Oh, why?
0: I think one reason for us using Jekyll as the name has to do with that aforementioned Spencer Tracy movie. Uh Because in 1941, when that was going to be released... And in that movie, everybody says Jekyll. MGM snapped up the rights to the earlier Paramount movie, and they went around and they destroyed every copy of that movie that they could find. Whoa. Actually making it a lost film for some time, it was hard to get a hold of that. Even though it was an Academy Award winning movie, you couldn't get it. Adaptations prior to the Frederick March film were silent, so we didn't actually hear anybody speak the name, like that John Barrymore 1920 movie. Uh, In the Spencer Tracy movie, they pronounced it Jekyll. That was a big hit. That's what everybody picked up. So there you go. I think that's why we say it that way to this day. Obviously, I don't know how they pronounced it in the stage adaptations. But I think it's definitely got to be right because it makes a lot more sense. Most of the names in this book are punny in some way, Mm -hmm. except Jekyll. I didn't know what the heck that, you know, it sounds like Jackal a little bit maybe, but that doesn't have a lot to do with his character. Right. But when you think about, you know, obviously Hyde is obvious. It's our hidden right. self. If you pronounce it Jekal, suddenly it rhymes with Seek. Oh, yeah. Jek, Seek, like seek all. Yeah. That's kind of, I think, what the origin of the name is. Ah. So anyway, just when you thought you knew everything, boom, that's how we're starting out the episode. Wow,
1: man. I don't, am I expected now to pronounce it Jekyll You are. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. I know.
0: No, you don't have to. I think Jekyll is is perfectly acceptable, but I'm going to try for Jekyll.
1: Okay. You know what? I'm going for it too. You know, one strange thing about this story is that my wife, Rachel, had just read the story last year. Mm. So I, before preparing for this show, had never read it. She beat me to the punch. Wow. And I think her interest in it was from a uh, psychological standpoint, as my wife Mm -hmm. is a psychotherapist. Right. The story is so much a part of, like, the zeitgeist of horror. You know, that I feel like Mm. I know what it's all about. But when I started reading it, it was just really different than what I imagined it
0: being. Sure. Well, you're only, as far as I know, the only Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde background you have is from Russell Crowe's performance in the Tom Cruise movie, The Mummy. (laughs) So as far as you know... Dr. Jekyll is running an organization that recruits monsters for adventure style adventures.
1: Well, I, I hate to contradict you, especially on air, Chad. But <laughs> my knowledge of of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is from mm-hmm. the Hugh Jackman film, Van Helsing. Oh, is that right? Yes, where he fights a, a, oh, Hulk, right. a Hulk-like Hyde on the top of a building oh, okay. in the very opening of the film. So point to me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, we've talked, we, we have actually talked about this before in the book uh, Dance Macabre, Stephen King's book about horror literature. He mm-hmm. lays out the three essential monster archetypes. He says it's the vampire, the werewolf, and the thing without a name. Uh, obviously, Dracula's the vampire, Frankenstein's monster is the thing without a name, but the werewolf kind of has never had a definitive novel. Certainly, no. we've covered a few on the show, but none of them, I would say, are the definitive werewolf novels. Certainly not Werewolf of Paris. No. I'd say The Wolfman, the film, is kind of the document that's got all the stuff in it. But Stephen King argues, as far as books go, that this, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, is actually the the werewolf novel. Hmm. And, you know, it is. A guy turns into another thing. Eventually, it's against his will and suffers as a result of what this creature does. But I think why Rachel might be reading this is because it's much richer than a simple guy turns into a monster, Incredible Hulk kind of thing. Yeah. In this book, it's more than that transformation. It's about addiction. It's about social mores and repression. It's about nature versus nurture. It's of the monster stories. I think it's the richest psychologically, which is why H.P. Lovecraft called it a permanent classic. And uh, aside from that, it's why we're covering it. So why don't we stop talking around it and jump in? The story starts off with these two guys, a London lawyer of good
1: standing called Mr. Utterson and his buddy and distant relation, Mr. Richard Enfield. Uh, Once a week, they have a stroll around and talk.
0: Robert Louis Stevenson was from Edinburgh, I think I already said. He lived all over the world. He was in America for a while. He lived in Northern California, traveled around in the Pacific. He actually died in Samoa. Mm -hmm. Yet, this story is set in sketchy, foggy 1880s London. Mm -hmm. The book came out in 1886. Much like Dracula, it was the stage adaptations of the book that really made it famous. And you can mm-hmm. see why this story would appeal for that. It's because you get to see somebody transform into something else. So this was a yeah. an opportunity for great acting and also for some interesting stagecraft. Yeah. The American actor-manager Richard Mansfield snapped up the copyright to the book as soon as it was published and produced it in Boston to rave reviews. Big smash. So Henry Irving, the actor in England, and you'll remember Irving from our Dracula coverage, he was the mm-hmm. actor... That Bram Stoker may be based the character of Dracula on. Irving heard about the production. He asked Mansfield to bring it to the Lyceum Theater in London, where it opened in August 1888, the same month that the mutilated corpse of a prostitute showed up in the east end of London.
1: Oh, right.
0: Yes. Richard Mansfield's performance as Dr. Jekyll turning into Mr. Hyde was so frightening to English audiences that he actually became a suspect for this murder. (laughs) (laughs) At least in the press, among many, many others. And of course, that murder was followed by others and became an obscure case that nobody's ever heard about. No, but the the Jack the Ripper murders were taking place when this book was making its splash. If you think about that period of time, that's the setting of this book. It's that foggy, rippery, (laughs) gaslit London. Um, Also, when we were talking about the punny names in the opening that we heard, we're introduced to Mr. Utterson. Even though the story is told in the third person. He's kind of our conduit into what happens. Uh, He correlates the contents of the mystery and he utters the truth to the reader. He's the only one who's left to tell the stories, which is why I think his name is Utterson. Mm -hmm. And, And we get a look into Utterson's character in that opening section that we heard. That is that despite being very stoic himself in his habits, he doesn't judge other people. Yeah. So that people often find him to be their last friend on their way down whatever path to destruction. And that intro alone tells us what's going to be the fate of our main character. You don't introduce a friend to the dying sinner unless that's the way the story is going to go down. Right. <laughs> so it tells you a lot. Uh, Mr.
1: Utterson and Mr. Enfield are on one of their walks when they pass by a house with an unusual door. It says, the door, which was equipped with neither bell nor knocker, was blistered and disdained. Tramps slouched into the recess and struck matches on the panels. Children kept shop upon the steps the schoolboy had tried his knife on the moldings and for close on a generation no one appeared to drive away these random visitors or to repair their ravages so the door makes mr enfield think of a previous incident where he saw this weirdly ugly man trample over a little girl and just keep on walking and it was this door that this creepy guy walked right into
0: enfield was coming home really late one night about 3 a.m the night was empty of people
2: until all at once i saw two figures One, a little man who was stumping along eastward at a good walk, and the other a girl of maybe eight or ten who was running as hard as she was able down a cross street. Well, sir, the two ran into one another naturally enough at the corner, and then came the horrible part of the thing, for the man trampled calmly over the child's body and left her screaming on the ground. It sounds nothing to hear, but it was hellish to see. It wasn't like a man... It was like some damned juggernaut. I took to my heels, collared my gentleman, and brought him back to where there was already quite a group about the screaming child. He was perfectly cool and made no resistance, but he gave me one look so ugly that it brought about the sweat on me like running. Little,
1: a little man. Mm. Which is strange to me, but uh, we'll get into that.
0: Because of the films that you've seen where it's kind of an Incredible Hulk character? yeah, He was
1: a gigantic Incredible Hulk in the Hugh Jackman film Van Helsing. So
0: Also in The Mummy, which I was talking about. Also in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comics and movie. Now in the comics they explain why he's larger. Alan Moore knows this book intimately, so he didn't just come up with some craziness.
1: Right. And we'll get into that later.
0: (laughs) Sure. I hope. (laughs) Uh,
1: So this girl screaming brought out a bunch of people, and a bunch of them were getting real heated and wanted to kick this guy's ass. Like, what kind of monster just brazenly tramples over a screaming, crying girl and then walks away? Hmm. So the crowd is all lathered up. They go to the door, and they demand that this guy do something about it. And he says he will give them 10 pounds in gold which is like $3,800 by our standards. Wow. And then a check for 90 pounds, which is like $34,000.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting that when we're introduced to Hyde, despite him being the villain, the good guys are blackmailing him. I mean, yes, he did trample over this child, but he immediately gets blackmailed. They don't take it to the authorities. No, no. I don't. They say, give us some money or we will take it to the authorities. Oh,
1: right. Yeah, they do. They definitely do. <laughs> uh, they won't let him go until the bank is opened because the check wasn't signed by the ugly man. It was signed by a reputable man. So they thought it was probably a forgery, but when they get to the bank, they find out it is not, and the check was legit.
0: He asked how much they wanted, he's like, just give me a figure, and I don't know how they came up with it, but they decided on this 90-pound check, and he goes in the door, gets the check when he comes out the check is signed but Enfield doesn't want to trample on the reputation of the guy who signed it right but as you say they're surprised when it clears
1: Utterson asks what the man looked like and Enfield describes him as being non-descriptively hideous like he was super ugly but in a way that was hard to pin down Mm. there's something wrong with his appearance something displeasing something downright detestable I never saw a man I so disliked and yet I scarce know why he must be deformed somewhere he gives a strong feeling of deformity although I couldn't specify the point He's an extraordinary-looking man, and yet I really can name nothing out of the way. No, sir, I can make no hand of it. I can't describe him, and it's not want of memory, for I declare I can see him this moment. Enfield then reveals that the ugly man was Mr. Edward Hyde, and to Hmm. his surprise, Utterson knows who that is, and knows the name on the check, which is Jekyll. They decide not to discuss it any further, because gossiping about it would be unseemly.
0: Also, they'd probably get into a whole argument about the pronunciation of... (laughs) Jekyll and Jekyll, so. (laughs)
1: Notice how easily we went right back to Jekyll. We didn't even (laughs) try for Jekyll. It sort of sucks (laughs) that this book is so widely known because the reveal at the end, everybody already knows what's up. Like Jekyll's Hyde hides Jekyll. We already know it's just part of the zeitgeist. Right. But this story is written as a mystery.
0: I can only imagine what a great read it must have been had you not known what the ending was. Yeah.
1: So the next chapter is The Search for Mr. Hyde. Later that night, Utterson goes back to his apartment to study a will that he wrote for his good buddy, Dr. Henry Jekyll.
0: It was something that Utterson was not happy to do for his friend. Uh, The
1: will says that if Jekyll dies or disappears for more than three months, that all of his possessions go to Mr. Edward Hyde. Since hearing the story about the girl trampling, he's worried that Mr. Hyde might have something on Jekyll, like blackmailing him or something like that. Mm -hmm. To see if he can figure out what it might be, Utterson goes to find his friend, Dr. Lanyon, a friend of Jekyll's. Lanyon says that he's never heard of this Hyde guy, and he lost touch with Jekyll, Because of a professional dispute.
2: It is more than ten years since Henry Jekyll became too fanciful for me. He began to go wrong, wrong in mind, and though, of course, I continue to take an interest in him for old sakes' sake, as they say, I see and have seen devilish little of the man. Such unscientific balderdash, added the doctor, flushing suddenly purple. What of a strange Daemon and Pythias? Damon and Pythias were totally best friends, if mm-hmm. you don't get the
0: illusion. When I was reading that, I felt sad because Lanyon's mad at him about whatever this is. Mm-hmm. This unscientific balderdash. If I ever ask about somebody and a third person says, oh, I fell out of touch with so-and-so, they were dabbling in things that they shouldn't, you know, you find out that it's the heroin or something. It's never yeah. like he's been trying to replace his leg with a shark in <laughs> you know defiance of God's will. It's always something commonplace. <laughs> anyway, I got to make more mad scientist friends, I guess.
1: Me too. That night, Utterson has nightmares. A faceless man running down a child, the faceless mm. man beside Jekyll's bed and telling him to wake up.
0: This image of Hyde over the bed is reminiscent of Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. And, and that's probably intentional because Hyde is, after all, the creation of a mad scientist. The difference here is just that he's, you know, the scientist is the subject as well as the experimenter. Right. But he is creating another being. And like Mary Shelley, the idea for this novel actually supposedly came to Stevenson in a dream. Hmm. In Ian Bell's biography, Robert Louis Stevenson, Dreams of Exile... He writes that Stevenson said he was working with extraordinary success on a new story that had come to him in a dream and that he was not to be interrupted or disturbed even if the house caught on fire. (laughs) After a three-day silence, Stevenson read the story aloud to his wife and stepson. Fanny Stevenson, she was an American woman that was married when he met her, I think, (laughs) and he eventually got her to marry him. Uh, There's some interesting stuff with Fanny. Fanny responded to the draft with harsh criticism. And this comes from Alana Knight's uh, compilation, The Robert Louis Stevenson Treasury. It says in there that Fanny told him he had missed the point of his own story. He had missed the allegory, had made it merely a story, a magnificent bit of sensationalism when it should have been a masterpiece. So tough love from the wife Stevenson in what may have either been irritation or agreement with her judgment (laughs) threw the manuscript into the fire and rewrote the story from scratch. Yes. Wow. In Bell's biography, it says, the writing of it was an astounding feat from whatever aspect it may be regarded. 64,000 words in six days. More than 10,000 words a day. To those who know little of such things, I may explain that a 1,000 words a day is a fair average for any writer of fiction. Mm -hmm. It was Jack London's quota and has been a sort of standard of daily literary accomplishment. Stevenson multiplied it by 10, and on top of that, copied out the whole in another two days and had it in the post on the third. Wow. So this thing, and it's a fast read, but it's apparently was just as fast of a write. Wow. And this is by hand. This is with a pen. This
1: isn't typing.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's crazy. The fact that it did come from this sort of fever dream might be the basis of not only the book, but Utterson's dream in this scene. here.
1: Right. You know, when you're talked about how he said, you know, don't interrupt me, even if the house is on fire. Yeah. I can't imagine having that kind of creative confidence in something that you're doing. Like, I'm so into this thing. It's going to be so awesome. Like, don't interrupt me. I've got to get this out. It's going to be brilliant. (laughs) Mm, I I just couldn't do that. Like, for me, it's if I I hear my wife, like, walk by the door upstairs where I'm working, like, oh, did you say something? Do do you need, want to have a coffee? Do you want (laughs) to, like, any excuse not to be sitting in my chair getting my work done?
0: Well, I'll tell you that I have entered into some... Some tasks with that much certainty, and they were almost invariably terrible. (laughs) What? (laughs) Don't bother me. I just had an idea that is so good, Mm, mountains will erode when this is read aloud. You know, work till five in the morning, and then wake up the next day and go, "What? Oh, good. This is ridiculous." It is even more of an impressive accomplishment when you realize that Robert Louis Stevenson was sick. I mean, he he basically contracted tuberculosis. Or something like it, a yeah. lung ailment when he was a child. We don't know exactly what it was. But he, his whole life, suffered from long periods of illness and was sick while he was writing this book. Fanny Stevenson recounted that it was extraordinary. An invalid in my husband's condition of health should have been able to perform the manual labor alone. He was suffering from continual hemorrhages and was hardly allowed to speak, his conversation usually being carried on by means of a slate and pencil. So he was in a condition that bad when he knocked this out.
1: Well, maybe for him, that's that's why it was so important, or that's why he can get so focused on it, because he couldn't even talk because of his illness, and so he just focused his attention. Instead of letting his illness take over him and just lie there and feel defeated, he was able to write, and that might have gave him that strength.
0: Sure. I think that he shares that with a lot of famous authors, including H.P. Lovecraft, yeah. where there were periods of illness that forced him to rely on his own creativity to pass the time, and as a result, he became quite a good writer.
1: Well, back to the story. Utterson is going to go all private dick and start stalking the area where Enfield saw Hyde enter the building. He's getting really
2: into it because he says, (laughs) If he be Mr. Hyde, I shall be Mr. Seek. I love that line. (laughs) Because not only is it
0: like a cheeseball 80s action movie line, it does show that the author doesn't find himself overly clever. Yeah, no. In naming the other character, Mr. Hyde. And of course, it's Jekyll who named the other person as well in the story. Yes. He's the one that's come up with this other name. So it makes sense that he'd pick... I gotta come... If you get the choice, like, I can't help that I'm Mr. Pfeiffer, but if I get to transform into another personality, you can bet it's gonna have a cool name, like Mr. Lightning Karate Chop, or, <laughs> you know. <laughs> if I disappear, everything in my possession goes to my heir, Mr. Sex. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Dr. Sex. It's spelled... S-E-K-Z. Sex.
1: (laughs) So Hyde is small and young. Again, not quite what I expected. Utterson comes up to him and introduces himself as a friend of Dr. Jekyll's. Hyde acts real shady and keeps his head down, but he talks to him.
0: If we haven't mentioned it, Utterson actually knows that this door is an entrance into Jekyll's lab. Mm. That that it adjoins Jekyll's large house, which is right around the corner. So he uses that excuse. He says, hey, I'm an old friend of Dr. Jekyll's, and I thought maybe you'd let me in to, to see him. Uh huh. As the reason that he was hanging around the house here, he, since
1: Mister Hyde's being dodgy about his appearance, like he's really trying to keep his face away from Utterson. Mm-hmm. Utterson goes, "Hey, what's what's up, man? I want to. Why won't you show me your face?"
0: He says, "I, I want to be able to know you later if I come across you in the street." But we know that he just wants to confirm the things that Enfield said about Mister
2: Hyde. Mister Hyde was pale and dwarfish. He gave an impression of deformity without any nameable malformation. He had a displeasing smile. He had borne himself to the lawyer with a sort of murderous mixture of timidity and boldness, and he spoke with a husky, whispering, and somewhat broken voice. All these were points against him, but not all of these together could explain the hitherto unknown disgust, loathing, and fear with which Mr. Utterson regarded him.
1: So Hyde gets very suspicious of Utterson as he studies him. Suddenly, he hurries into the house and locks the door. Utterson goes down the street a ways to Dr. Jekyll's place, and a servant, Poole, answers the door. Utterson asks Poole a lot of questions about Hyde, and Poole has got some loose lips and spills the tea on Hyde. (laughs) Jekyll has given Hyde a key to the lab down the street, and the servants have all been given orders to obey Hyde whenever he's around. Alas, Jekyll isn't home. Utterson thinks that Jekyll might be being blackmailed by Hyde, still. Mm. Jekyll was kind of a party animal back in the day. And if Hyde got some dirt on him, you know, like maybe he did awesome cake stands or he smoked marijuana cigarette or maybe had a three way with two guys and a girl. (gasps) I don't know. Could be anything. Any of these things would damage his reputation, especially in Victorian England. And reputation was everything at that time. It's the only thing that would make sense because this Hyde was of such a low reputation just by hanging out with him lowers Jekyll's reputation
0: a bit. There's a lot of Victorian English repression addressed in this book, as well as the repression of the religious culture that Stevenson would have grown up in in Edinburgh. We'll probably talk about that stuff a bit more in later episodes.
1: The next chapter is Dr. Jekyll was quite at ease... This is two weeks later. Doctor Jekyll throws a fancy dinner party with lots of high-status guests. Utterson says after everyone else has left, and then he gets the skinny on Hyde from Jekyll, and he wants to to warn him specifically. Utterson brings up the will, and Hyde, being the benefactor of that will, telling him, "Look, I don't approve. This guy is bad. You shouldn't do this." Like this almost gives him incentive to you know kill you or mm. you know to get your money. But Jekyll just blows him off, and then Utterson says, I've been learning something about young Hyde. And then when he says that, Jekyll gets all worried and pale. And then he goes, I don't want to hear it. I've got it
2: all under control. I will tell you one thing. The moment I choose, I can be rid of Mr. Hyde. That doesn't sound like an after-school special at all. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I can quit whenever I want! So Jekyll says to Utterson that he's super interested in what Hyde is doing and that he's going to continue to provide for him. And he also reaffirms that his will is how he wants it. So just Sit on it,
0: Utterson. (laughs) Right. He just says it's a private matter, Utterson. Back off. And that's probably as far as we should go uh, with the story right now, those first three chapters. Yeah. It sets up that Hyde's a bad guy. It sets up the group of people who are going to be looking into this mystery. Uh, And at this point, Jekyll is still unrepentant about what's going on. Right. Wants everybody out of his business. He's having a good time with
1: it. There's also an aspect to this that I wanted to bring up because it's a theme that goes throughout the whole book is that it, there's a bit of reason versus superstition in this. Hmm. That Hyde is ugly, but not in any way that they can describe physically. Right. And I think that that is supposed to represent that he is metaphysically ugly, like mm-hmm. spiritually. There's some corruption that's going on with him that's not actually physical. It's just part of his soul. And then that people can get a sense of that. And that kind of flies in the face of Utterson's rationalism. Right. It's him trying to deal with that and solve this mystery even though there's something wrong that he can't quite put his finger on. It's it's that detective story, that aspect of it, where him yeah, yeah. trying to grapple with the supernatural or the, the metaphysical aspects of, of this case.
0: Yeah, and I think, so you're saying that like that dream sequence is him working it out. Right, exactly. When he's not awake, he's not rational and he can be working out the details of this in his subconscious mind. <laughs> dream sequences are often good for that, right? Because we see somebody, we see the detective working out how they're going to attack the case. Yeah. But also they're good because, you know, Gotta fill 90 minutes of a movie in a dream sequence. It's just an artsy way to you know to kill eight minutes. <laughs> yeah. You can have fun with it. Have some fun with it. I want
1: to thank our reader Matt Young. Please check out their new album Invicta coming out Friday, the twentieth
0: of April. Yes, that is the band Hex, H E K Z. We will be linking out to their website in our show notes.
1: We'll be back next week with the second part of the bizarre, the titillating, the strange case of Doctor Jekyll
0: <laughs> uh, and Mr. Yes. Hyde. That's right going to get more jiggle. I think we're going to get into some of the sexuality in this novel. Yeah, I'm mm. going to talk about some of the metaphor for addiction. And uh, maybe we're going to find out just what my alter ego, Mr. Sex, is really all about. <laughs> <laughs> so tune in then. I am Chad Pfeiffer.
1: I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast
0: at hppodcraft.com.
2: hppodcraft.com. I'm
1: going to spend the
2: evening here with you just as you want say just as I want say just as I want just as I want that's right my little (laughs) bird. the last evening is always the sweetest you know what (laughs) a farewell this one what (laughs) a farewell I don't know whether I should be able to tear myself away from you at all